0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event.
1: Welcome to the Institute for Government and the annual lecture by Bronwyn Maddox, the director. My name is Richard Lambert, I'm on the board of the IFG and I'm chairing this evening's event. The Institute for Government under Bronwyn's leadership has played an extraordinary part in this past year. Its work on the pandemic and on Brexit has become essential reading for politicians, policymakers, commentators and for people like me who just want to try and understand what the heck is going on. At the same time it's continued with its bread and butter work on developing arguments for civil service reform, publishing its Whitehall monitors and much else beside. And one way to measure the impact of all this is to look at the explosion of interest over the past 12 months. So there's a lot to look forward to in Bronwyn's lecture tonight. Here's the plan. She will speak for roughly half an hour. David Runciman will then respond to her remarks. David, as you all know, teaches politics and history at Cambridge, where he's professor of politics. His journalism is one of the many reasons for subscribing to the London Review books. And if you don't listen to his podcast, Talking Politics, then you really should. After he's spoken, uh, the three of us will talk together for a bit and then we'll have a decent amount of time for your questions and comments before we wrap up at 7.15. So please start typing up your thoughts and ideas on the chat function as soon as you like. And with that, over to Bronwyn.
0: Richard, thank you very much indeed. Good evening and a second welcome from me. Thank you all very much for coming, so to speak. In this talk every year, I look at the government's record and what we at the IFG think it should do better in running itself and running the country. And coronavirus has brutally simplified the discussion dwarfing even Brexit, which was the big challenge last year. The grim total reached yesterday, more than 100,000 deaths of those with the disease will stand as one measure of that record, inevitably. And as the Prime Minister said, that bald figure does not capture the devastation that this loss of life actually means. When at least 20,000 of those deaths took place in care homes in the first wave of the disease, and half of the total has occurred since November, it's right to ask what the government could have done differently. Boris Johnson said yesterday, we truly did all we could. And in one sense, I'm sure this is absolutely true. No one thinks he and his colleagues were not trying to do everything they could in this historic crisis, which took the prime minister himself into intensive care. But his government didn't do everything it should have done. He and his team have handled some things surefootedly, footedly but some things extraordinarily badly, and they've made some mistakes again and again. In July, the Prime Minister promised an independent inquiry into the government's handling of coronavirus, and we argued then that an early interim inquiry would be useful, as well as one in retrospect, to enable lessons to be learned while this was still going on. Well, in the absence of that interim inquiry, I'll offer you our assessment. And I'm going to start with three points about what the past year has shown us before turning to three challenges that the government now faces. For all the starkness of that headline figure yesterday, my first point is a positive one, that preparation does pay off. The things that have worked well for government in the past horrifying year are generally the ones where time and often a lot of money have gone into planning. One of the most successful parts of the response was financial support through the furlough scheme, the loans to businesses, the support for people through benefits. And that's partly because the bald mechanics of getting money to people really quickly worked well through HMRC and the Department for Work and Pensions. And that reflects in turn a huge amount of work done over the years on the invisible but crucial technology of digital payment systems, although there are now signs that HMRC is struggling with the sheer volume. The much maligned universal credit did come into its own in terms of getting money to people quickly, although there is a legitimate debate about whether the actual level of benefit should be higher. But Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, should bear Universal Credit's performance in this crisis in mind when he vows to scrap it. NHS capacity has also held up in a stark sense that hospitals have kept admitting patients. Of course, treatment of COVID cases has come at a huge cost to non-coronavirus care. Ratios of nurses to patients have fallen. NHS staff themselves have been under immense physical and emotional strain, something of great concern to hospital managers now. But that the NHS was able to handle the numbers we've seen this year, particularly in this latest spike, at all reflects the planning of recent years. And in this list of successes in planning, I want to point, to government support for research and development. That includes help for the Oxford Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, and that help started well before COVID with support for developing a MERS vaccine that, in turn, created the technology repurposed for the COVID vaccine and the COVID vaccine initiative then had R&D funding, and in April, £20 million to speed up clinical trials. The Prime Minister appears to have been determined from early last year to try to give the UK its own vaccine. And the UK's skill in genome sequencing has also enabled it, The Economist reports, to sequence as many genomes of the virus as the rest of the world combined. This has been helped by £20 million, quickly authorised by Sir Patrick Balance, the Ch- Chief Scientific Officer, in March, for a collaboration of UK-based scientists. And the vaccine purchasing and rollout too is so far as success, provided that the gamble on the delay between doses pays off. I'm going to extend this point that preparation pays off to a few aspects of Brexit. A few. Obviously, a deal that went to the wire left no time for a lot of essential work. But in the tortuous last few years, some did get done. The IT traffic management and infrastructure at the border have held up reasonably well, although much lower traffic levels at the moment, partly because of coronavirus, have helped. But there hasn't been the disruption at the Kent ports envisaged in the government's reasonable worst-case scenario, despite the added pressures of COVID testing for lorry drivers, although it is absolutely true that supply chains have been disrupted elsewhere. And the new Trader Support Service, which completes new customs paperwork for goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, That's also generally worked well, although the Northern Ireland protocol has brought other problems. True, there is new friction at the UK's borders and there may be more to come. That will inhibit trade, but planning where it took place did pay off. However, my second point about what this year has shown us is not cheerful. This crisis has exposed serious weaknesses in the way that Boris Johnson's government makes decisions and how it works out what it plausibly can deliver. That has led to some of the worst mistakes of the past year and many U-turns. It is perhaps understandable, though in hindsight a point of regret, that this government was slow moving at the start as alarming reports came in from China and Italy. It was a brand new government. It was fired up on a big election win to do Brexit and levelling up. No government would want to tackle this crisis, but one that had been longer in office might have found it easier to accept this brutal change of priorities. The Prime Minister personally also clearly did not want to trample over civil liberties, an instinct which in normal times most people would be glad to see in a leader. But there is no such excuse for the slowness of the second lockdown and the third. Let's take two, the discharge of infected patients from hospitals into care homes. That was one of the worst early mistakes and one of the reasons why the UK has such an overall uh, high death rate there were nearly 30,000 more deaths in care homes between 28th of December 2019 and 12th of June in the summer, compared to the same period in the year before. And of these, nearly 20,000 had death certificates mentioning COVID. The lack of communication with hospitals reflects a neglect of social care, which long predates this government. But it also shows the way the prime minister was not consulting well with his ministers and they with each other. The hesitancy of decisions and their sometimes contradictory nature, also stems from a mishandling of science. The government has made a big point of always following the science, but it should have been clear that it needed to weigh the science, that is, projections of loss of life from coronavirus against other health risks and against the economic cost. It tried essentially to abdicate responsibility for these immensely unpalatable decisions by invoking science, and that in turn misrepresents science, which of its essence is always evolving its conclusions and sometimes does so more slowly than ministers would like. The government has pretended to certainty where it did not exist. For instance, in estimates of the R number or the benefit of mask wearing or whether it was safe to stand at one meters or two meters from someone else. That misleads people about the nature of decisions that a government has to take, which are of necessity judgments in the middle of uncertainty. The public might have been more tolerant of U-turns and the government made fewer of them if ministers had understood this point better and had communicated it better. The consequence of scrapping exams, the uproar over grades in university places, the whole spectacular summer mess in education, that has been another of the worst mistakes because of the impact on so many pupils, because the problems of the first approach to awarding grades were entirely foreseeable, because they unfurled almost in slow motion compared to the speed with which other decisions had to be taken. That continues. Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, has still not said how pupils are to be graded this year, weeks after he, he scrapped public exams for a second time. It is clear the Prime Minister made some decisions quickly himself, such as the abortive direction to schools to reopen in June, without taking into account the views of the Department, which would have explained the problems in doing so. The Treasury appeared to be an early exception to this record of hesitant and ill-judged decisions. It made good early decisions very quickly on financial support, getting the right people in the room, for instance, HMRC talking directly to Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. Sunak's team were also canny enough to get businesses and unions to endorse their steps. But then they failed to use the months that followed to address the bluntness of the schemes in targeting the most needy, diverting money away from those who didn't need support, and combating fraud. Overpromising has been one of the government's worst mistakes, as in promising an end to lockdowns, or schools returning, or gathering for Christmas, or what a tracing app could do. It's in danger now of overpromising what vaccines can do in retrieving daily life as it was. Overpromising might step from the Prime Minister's personal desire to bring people at least some good news, but it has been damaging for public trust and parliamentary support. Ministers, and this is a point the IFG makes in our ministerial training, they could do with a grounding in modelling, in statistics, in estimates and probability. And the Prime Minister does need to use the Cabinet more in making decisions. If Boris Johnson has a reshuffle, he should bring in heavier hitters with more experience who can also tell him when they think he is wrong. My third and final point about the past year is that it has exposed a deep confusion about accountability. Who is accountable for results? Ministers? Officials? Advisors? Agencies? All of these? Take the case of Priti Patel, Home Secretary, and the recent incident of police records inadvertently wiped. It's hard, in our view, to argue that she should be held directly responsible for the unfortunate change to the software back in November. Although she's certainly accountable to Parliament in explaining what happened and what is going to be done in her department to reduce the chance of such mistakes. This is a domain of responsibility The NARVU falls under the Permanent Secretary of that department with systems that should be assured by the Government Digital Service and may also fall under the Cabinet Secretary and Chief Operating Officer of the Civil Service. We are in favour of Permanent Secretaries having to account to Parliament for a much wider range of questions than the financial ones that are part of their role as accounting officer where constitutional responsibility is already clear. Let's compare that with the case of Jonathan Slater, Permanent Secretary of the Department for Education, last year, until asked to leave just after the summer's debacle, and with that of his Secretary of State, Gavin Williamson. As we argued at the time, these decisions were not just those of a Permanent Secretary, but inescapably also those of the Minister. Williamson explicitly directed Ofqual, the exam agency, to avoid inflation in grades for public exams. That was part of its remit, but the emphasis led it to propose the calamitous algorithm which delivered so many individually unfair results to pupils. In Williamson's defence, this is not going to be a long part of my speech, I have to say, uh, it is clear that some of the directions came straight from the Prime Minister. The Education Secretary was no doubt just trying to carry out the Prime Minister's orders, but that does not absolve Williamson of responsibility for the poor decisions which worsened the uncertainty and stress to pupils. It's clear in all this that ministers Have a poor grasp of the role of government agencies and arm's length bodies in the jargon and their own responsibility for them that isn't easy as the ifg has long pointed out these organizations were set up at different times under very different rules public health england is an executive agency and directly answerable to ministers although there is a sense that they didn't realize that at the start in normal times ministers unfortunately tend not to be very interested in much more than who leads these bodies then a crisis happens And they're scrambling to work out their authority and what the agency can do. In this case, Public Health England's focus on long-term problems, such as the nation's diet, didn't equip it to advise on PPE. And then the responsibility for distributing PPE rested with another body, entirely NHS supply chain, a company reporting to the health secretary. One of the first pieces of advice we give new ministers is to find out which agencies they control or supervise, what those do and can be ordered to do. The Prime Minister and his team have sometimes given the impression that they consider accountability and constitutional rules something to be shaped to their needs, as they did over the Internal Market Bill and their stated willingness to break international law. We could also take the case of Sir Mark Sedwell, defenestrated as Cabinet Secretary last year. The Prime Minister has every right, more than that, a need to be sure he has a Cabinet Secretary with whom he can work. But people might reasonably ask why Sedwell, the head of an impartial civil service, was shown the door when Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's chief advisor, was not after his now world-famous trip to Barnard Castle. That is not good for public trust. At a time when the government is enforcing great incursions on civil liberties and demanding great sacrifices, it matters. The result is that public trust in government is even lower than it might be, although expectations of what government can and should do at the same time high. That is perhaps the government's greatest challenge in the coming year, which I'll come on to now. There are all kinds of things in this year to come beyond coronavirus. Those include, include net zero, where Britain's hosting the COP26 climate change summit in November, and with the exit of Donald Trump from the world stage, might actually be able to broker an agreement. The G7 meeting in June, also hosted by the UK, will give a chance for the government to make clear it's still in substantial notion of global Britain. Relations with the EU are inevitably going to take a lot of detailed work. But coronavirus still dominates. So the first task, is the first of three points I'm going to make, the first task is recovery and rebu- rebuilding from the devastation of the pandemic. One senior civil servant said to me that it resembled the scale of the task faced by the Attlee government after the Second World War. That is not grandiose. There is a calamity of mental health just beginning to show up in statistics, a calamity of physical health, alcohol use, undetected cancer, untreated heart disease. There is the catastrophe of what's happened to a whole cohort of pupils at school. The government now has a chance to make big changes, it needs to try to take forward reforms in technical education already underway and consider whether GCSEs and A-levels are really the best destination for the school years or the best way to determine entry into university. It needs to consider whether the NHS should always run with hospitals nearly full and how to integrate it with social care. And so while it should use this recovery to make its talk of levelling up real, that should include human capital in the jargon not just building roads and rail and assorted big stuff, which is how people often interpret the phrase. You should also try to capture the best of the emergency, better broadband and digital access to make the most of the new steps that we've seen in telemedicine, video care, working at home and indeed digital government. There is an ongoing argument in the cabinet on the big economic questions, whether and how to pay down debt the right level of benefits and pensions, whether to do something about generational fairness. That was an existing problem that the pandemic has exacerbated. The younger generations have sacrificed a lot in this crisis for a disease far less likely to kill them than it would those over 80. How to make that up to them is one of the next big questions, and there should be no doubt that in the end they will devise the politics to take some kind of recompense if political leaders do not offer it. Perhaps hardest, government needs to explain to people where its responsibilities stop. At some point, there is a limit to what it can do. Beyond that, the normal creativity and creative destruction, to use Schumpeter's famous phrase of a liberal economy, needs to take over. The government is responsible for steering a course during this suspension of normal life, but it is not responsible for every part of recovery when those constraints ease, one of the hardest things to explain to people. As an illustration of this problem, contrary to what News reports might suggest there has been a sharp fall of the number of businesses going bust, down 35% between April and November compared compared to the same period the previous year. That suggests that government schemes are propping up at least some businesses that would in normal times have gone under. Government needs to get back to normal service at some point, as the Chancellor keeps saying, but it will be very hard politically after a year in which its spending and responsibilities might have seemed limitless. My second point is the government's big tasks for the year should be the reform of the civil service. This is at the heart of what the IFG does. Dominic Cummings, the loudest advocate of these reforms, might have gone, but his agenda, which we broadly welcomed, should not. The danger is that it now disappears. The problems that he identified, as did Michael Gove in a key speech in the summer, are the right ones. Knowledge and expertise are undervalued, The modern world is complex. Details take years to master to the point where you can make good decisions. Economics, finance and banking, transport, energy, defense, digital technology, medicine. It baffles me that people still think these can be mastered within a few days of taking up a new job. And pay and promotion don't reward those enough, and they still encourage people in the civil service to move between jobs as much as they can. Sir John Kingman, former second permanent secretary at the Treasury, gave a speech at the IFG just before Christmas where he said that someone had to grasp the pay problem at some point, given the huge differential between the civil service and, say, consultancy or banking. The device of employing more experts and consultants in what amounts to a parallel civil service is the current way around it, and there is no public appetite for paying politicians more, and so a rise in civil service salaries is then probably also inaccessible. But the civil service will only get the skills it needs if it tackles these problems. And as this year has shown, it really matters that those skills and knowledge are there. My third point about the challenges the government faces this year is about devolution. As the Sunday Times poll showed at the weekend, independence for Scotland and a border poll for, in Northern Ireland have got growing support, as does, at a much lower level, independence for Wales. We're publishing work questioning the record of the devolved administrations in public services, but there is no questioning the fact that devolution is very popular. The UK isn't alone in this. Unions are strained in many places, not just the EU itself, struggling to get a united front on vaccine purchase or travel, let alone its key democratic values or members' financial support for each other. The US has had a searingly divisive presidency and election. In Canada, separatist tendencies, long, quiet and bubbling up. In this crisis in the UK, devolved governments have expressed resentment, in our view justified, at not always being considered, uh, consulted by number 10, or given very little warning of money heading their way so that they can't plan well how to spend it. On the other hand, those governments, particularly the one led by the SNP, have a deep political interest in demonstrating just how different they can be from England. And when they take different directions it can lead to unfortunate results for the country overall as in the period when wales had cancelled its public exams but england had not threatening to render a year of school results very hard to compare for universities and employers if johnson's government wants to make the case for the union of the uk to endure as it says it does it will have to argue much more strongly for the benefit of being part of the whole It is, it seems to me personally, a pity if the answer to every difference is to break up a union into smaller pieces. Sometimes when groups of people simply do not want to live with each other, of course, that is the answer. Some of my formative years were as a reporter in the Balkans and the Middle East. Even so, identity politics treat harshly the question of what to do with a minority who disagree with the majority. And there always is a minority. So if the UK government wants to make its case, how does it do it? not just with more powers, although those are one route, but more representation. And the future of the bulging House of Lords is rightly again in question. Not necessarily with more money, as our work has shown coronavirus has diverted more money to the devolved administrations through the Barnett formula this year, a total of 16 billion pounds in extra funding. But with more consultation and more display of what can be done in common, such as the development and purchase of vaccines, and indeed, by showing that it is learning the lessons of this horrendously painful year, as I've been discussing. So let me say this in in conclusion. Coronavirus has been an extraordinarily difficult threat to combat. It strikes at people's deepest fears. What's more, and this clearly has been the Prime Minister's anguish, it's forced the government to override some liberties that are at the heart of the UK's values. For just that reason, though, The government's fluidity in interpreting the constitution should be of great concern. The government needs to take extra care to show that it respects institutions and principles. If people are not to wonder whether it makes up rules to suit itself, it does not help when it appears to hold those rules, including international law, very lightly. The hardest task now facing the government is setting expectations for people. The despair of businesses told they can't open for months is painful. So is the desperation of parents trying to work while homeschooling their children, or those who've lost their jobs and can't start to find others, or those who've been alone for most of a year or are worrying about whether they'll get the virus or lose people they love to it. Yet the government government can't give them a date for the end of this, although Johnson will come under pressure from his own party to do just that. To pretend otherwise would be to fall once more into a trap that the government has seemed to find irresistible so many times. It needs to explain the role it's going to play in coming out of this, including preserving the innovation that has happened and where its responsibility will at some point end. No UK government in our lifetimes, in peacetime, has faced such pressure and so many really complicated choices. This year isn't going to bring less pressure or simpler choices. The government has pulled off some tremendous successes, but it has, on many occasions, fallen short. The figure of more than 100,000 people who have died, in part, reflects that. Johnson has promised an independent inquiry, which in our view is justified. In the meantime, while waiting for that, we'll look to the coming year to see whether any lessons are indeed learned. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, um, uh, Bronwyn. That was uh, characteristically clear, thoughtful and uh, sharply to the point. Let's go straight over to David Runciman to respond.
2: Thank you very much. And thank you to Bronwyn. It was, um, it was fascinating. And also, I would say, characteristically even-handed as well. And after the year that we've had, I think all of us find it extremely hard to be even-handed about pretty much any of it. I wanted to pick up just on three things. There's so much there that we could talk about, um, and maybe we'll get to some more of it. But I wanted to flag up three possible areas of discussion. So one relates to the argument about accountability, which I completely agree with, that One thing that's been revealed over this last year is, in many ways, how confused we are, all of us, about accountability and where the buck stops, but also the various ways in which it's possible to fudge that issue. Um, And that connects to what Bronwyn was saying about the importance of planning and the crucial role we all now are aware of, that experts, people with real knowledge, play in any modern system of government. But I was really struck by the example that the the speech began with, the universal credit system and the ways in which some of the successes that the government has had this year have come from a system that was devised essentially for a different political purpose. Um, And the investment in that system allowed it then to be deployed in a different area. And that also suggests that some of this is inadvertent. I mean, there is an inadvertence to some of the success that the government has had and also the huge dependence, and this is nothing new, I mean, I I think it's true of all governments and administrations, the huge dependence on legacy decisions and indeed on the legacy of technological investment. But it's at least possible that now that is more acute, that we are living in an age of extraordinary complexity, but also dependence upon a whole range of technologies and systems over which the people who are tasked with delivery do not necessarily have the primary choices and certainly who have not created the legacy. And that suggested to me two questions and I'm gonna put them reasonably bluntly. I'm aware it's probably more complicated than this and there are ways in which we might talk about the complexity here because when one talks about expertise, it does tend to get a bit heated quite quickly. But I think there is a real question here about the accountability of experts in an age where we are so dependent, all of us, on shared technologies particularly. It also gets a a little, I think, to the point about science and the uses and misuses of science. In that complex set of relationships between ministers, civil servants, advisors, government agencies, there is also a question about where within that or indeed outside of that, the real knowledge lies, the knowledge on which these systems depend. And does that need to be brought into the chain of accountability too? I know that talking about expertise, people tend to think of it as a sort of binary question. You're somehow for experts or against experts. And then it's pointed out we're all for experts because we all visit the doctor. Well, in a way we are all for experts, but 21st century government and administration, I think it's at least possible to ask the question, what does the accountability of expertise mean in this system? And is too much perhaps being focused On politicians. And I'm not therefore trying to get the politicians off the hook, far from it. But it's not clear to me that we've resolved that question. And then there's a more acute version of that question, I think, which is part of contemporary politics in this country and around the world, which is the the accountability of the technology companies themselves. There is at least the possibility of a huge accountability gap. And I think it's been bubbling up for years. It may well become absolutely central to the politics of the Biden administration, but it's an issue for all countries including this one in what ways are the <clears throat> excuse me in what ways are the people who really are responsible for some of the basic technological infrastructure accountable to the rest of us and i don't think we are any nearer answering that question either and i can't believe that over the politics of the next few years it's not going to be anything but more acute so there's a, there's a question i think about the accountabilities of experts and indeed of technology corporations the second point relates to what you might think of as the opportunities coming out of this terrible year and this terrible pandemic and Bronwyn touched on them that governments in these situations do have the chance to do big things um, and to rethink some big questions whether it's education or health or so on and indeed to make big investments but there are also challenges here and the one that really stood out for me is the one Bronwyn that you highlighted about the generation gap, uh, an issue in our politics, a large issue in our politics for nearly a generation now, I would say, but it's becoming more acute and everything about what's happened over the last year has has widened it. The effects on education, the effects on the job market, particularly for people who are trying to get into it, and the fact that this has all been done for the sake of the health of far, far older generations than the ones who may well are going to be bearing the brunt of the immediate financial and educational consequences. But I was very struck by a line, which is if the government doesn't get this right, but when you said in your speech, and I'll quote it, the, the generation that has lost out will devise the politics to take some kind of recompense. And I'm not sure that's even an if. I think that might well just be a will. Because the other opportunity that has been created by this pandemic, by this last year, and will only widen that the scope for taking advantage of this opportunity is not just for government it is also for opposition for different kinds of opposition not just the opposition that the Labour Party is focused on at the moment which is the politics of competence and I actually think that that connects to this issue about the accountability of experts I think there is a hostage to fortune in highlighting the politics of competence when competence is so dependent on legacies and inadvertence But there's also a real question about the many ways in which I think different political forces will be unleashed over the next two to three years. At the moment, politics is frozen in many ways. So a lot of people have been struck by the fact that the pandemic doesn't seem to have shifted much polling is stable even in the United States there was an expectation that somehow the Trump administration would be blown away and then the election was close it wasn't that close but it was close in the electoral college but many many more people than were expected turned out to vote for Trump and it looked like maybe corona politics isn't such an important thing it's far too early to say that because everything is frozen but as we come out of this freeze Opposition, I think, is going to be turbocharged too. And there are many opportunities for disruption. And I think governments, including this one, are going to face all sorts of challenges that they may not have anticipated. So there is the possibility that the young devise a politics to extract recompense. There's also the possibility that the energies of anti-lockdown politics find a spokesperson or even a party I think there are lots of ways in which opposition politics is going to surprise us over the next few years, and that is going to make government harder. This current situation, it looks stable. It's not. And then finally, what strikes me as the big question facing British politics and indeed facing this government over the next few years, and it's the one, Bronwyn, that you came to at the end, which is about devolution and the future of the union. And straightforwardly, the question, what is the case that can successfully be made under these conditions for the continuation of the United Kingdom? And I find it a very difficult question to answer. So you gave the outlines of possible answers, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. But it connects a little bit back to what I was saying at the beginning, that there is Uh, temptation to fall back on a kind of legacy defense of the union connected to complexity and interconnectedness and the ways in which so much of what needs to be done by government in the 21st century intertwines with all sorts of other jurisdictions so that the disentanglement is hard. And the two problems with that line of argument, even if it's not done in project fear terms, kind of you can't do this or it'll all fall apart, but simply that the advantages of union outweigh the advantages of separation because of the complexity and interconnectedness of 21st century politics, administration, economics and life. The two dangers, I think, with that argument, one is that it didn't work in relation to the European Union because the same case could and indeed was made and it wasn't enough. The legacy argument, but also because it does seem to me to open the door to the possibility that it looks like a way of shirking accountability questions. It's too complicated for separation to be possible. Also sounds a bit like it's too complicated for accountability to be clear. And I think that opens the door for the counter argument successfully to be made that if we're to have accountability, we need separation too. So. I think there needs to be a different argument and I'm just not sure I know what it is yet. And a little part of me thinks I'm not sure because I'm not sure it can be made. And I'm sure Bronwyn is right that the things that need to be highlighted are not just money um, and resources, but representation, consultation, and the ways in which this union has to be much more responsive to its constituent parts. But then the question to me is, what are the institutions through which this is going to be possible? Is it going to be possible to do it through the institutions that we currently have? What would this representation look like? What would this consultation look like within the current constitutional arrangement of the United Kingdom? And I struggle to see that there is the slack, the room in the system for it. I think it probably, and I think Gordon Brown was hinting at this the other day, it probably needs to be more radical than that institutionally. We maybe need to rethink what we mean by representation, what we mean by consultation. Does consultation have to include deliberation, that is deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies, participation in a whole range of ways that's currently very, very hard to achieve? Does representation have to involve rethinking electoral systems, rethinking the nature of political representation? And if it involves that, if that has to be part of the defense of the union, I don't think that there is currently the bandwidth to do it. I don't see this government over the course of this parliament taking on really serious institutional reform of the way we do democracy. But absent that, I'm not sure the case for the union can be made. And so I'm not sure that the case for the union is going to win out. But I'd like to be persuaded otherwise.
1: Thank you very much, uh, David. Well, there are three, four huge questions there, uh, Bronwyn. You can take your pick of one or two or all of them. Um, Accountability of experts in an age of of, of, of the the, uh, and whether technology companies need to be brought into the loop as well. Uh, The uh, opportunities and risk and the big challenges that will flow once this pandemic is over and um, in education, social care and elsewhere. Um, then the future of, of, of the union, and uh, underneath all those questions, I think is: mm. Does the government have the bandwidth to answer the big questions that um, David has just posed?
0: Mm. Um, uh, Richard, thank you, and David, th- thanks enormously. I mean, uh, for uh, terrific questions, any uh, one of which could occupy not just the IFG but the government for uh, a long time. Let me start with your accountability one, which I think is absolutely right, and. I wonder myself what is going to uh, come out of the coronavirus emergency in terms of people's um, view of the scientists um, and the role that scientists have been given in this because um, the the way the government put so much weight on scientific advice I think was not helpful to the scientists. It, It implied essentially that the country was being shut down on the sole views of, uh, as you said, unelected experts. And that seems to me, as I said, avoiding um, the responsibility that politicians themselves take. But you also said to politicians, I- I- in some way, they're carrying too much of the accountability. And I think in some respects, uh, yes. And the example I gave of of, of um, contrasting, say, the decisions very clearly taken by Gavin Williamson that led to some of the the, the, the schools um, uh, mess in the, in the summer with um the the distance of uh, any home secretary but say the, the, this one from uh, something that goes on in the, uh, the the computers of the run by the, the, the home office um, to us that creates uh, a space where we would like to see more direct accountability of civil servants and much greater clarity about when ministers are accountable when civil servants are accountable um and where in the chain of the civil service that that, that is held um it, 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 technical point but i i i agree if you like with both both sides of that i'd be surprised if people don't begin to challenge more than they have um the views of experts though um whether it is those of the um uh, the, the, the regulators, of, say Ofcom, or indeed the you know the Bank of England, and keeping I- interest rates very low, which has had knock-on effects of, uh, on, on, on asset prices and the wealth of um, a generation. Uh, I'd be surprised if this wasn't very much part of the discussion in the in the coming years. Um, let me go to um, one of one of your other points. The, the tech companies. I'm going. I'm going to leave at this point. I don't know where that story ends. Where the governments can bring them. Into account or not, as you said, I think it is one of the huge questions. More central, in a way, in America than here at the moment. But one of the huge questions about about the coming years and the way that they have, in a sense, owned the lockdown only makes that uh, more so. On the um, on the the, the 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 question of um, opportunities from all this, yes, I mean, it, 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 you don't want to go on too much about the. Uh, the, the bright side of this, because really it is such a fantastically bleak catastrophe that has hit the world on us. But people's ingenuity has led some things to be done better as a result of it. And one of the things... Um, while, while, you know, in, in the end, that's going to have to rest on peoples and companies' ingenuity. One of the things you do want government to do in this is to make it as easy as possible for those things that have flourished and have been innovated during all this um, to 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 prosper in the, in the in the future. And if if nothing else, it has put a lot of weight on Britain's strength in R and D. Uh, and I hope very much that that uh, that gets the support it deserves in the future. On the union. I agree. It's not even just bandwidth that the government lacks. I wonder whether it lacks space. Space is it, but perhaps with this other drama going on, uh, dramas on, on every side of it, you know every bit of what government does at the moment, whether it can find the the distance to appreciate, whether well, the perspective rather than distance to, to appreciate what is at stake and find the language, and the responsiveness to address the threats that that are uh that are rising up to the threats to the union and sometimes those are very articulately put um, as in uh, uh the case of the snp which doesn't miss a trick um to find a a case uh, even um say in the, the the follow money which polls show many people in scotland think is actually doled out by the snp not by um, the the UK government, or, or quieter shifts of opinion in, in in Northern Ireland, partly as a response to Brexit. Um, I I wonder whether the government has that perspective. Um, the first way for it to start, in my view, I'm, I'm not here to give a defence of the union, but the first way for it to start is, in a sense, the easy the, the easiest one, um, is more consultation, because um, what we've heard during this, I think, a lot, is the devolved administrations um, very much wanting to be included, uh, absolutely being included in conversations at some parts, and then other parts not, and the frustration, uh, their frustration in trying to get through um, to London on this and trying to synchronise uh, policies. Yes, as I've said, they do have something of an interest, uh, in some cases, in showing they can be different. But I think overall there has been a desire to, to synchronise things. And that would be the the first place to start. Obviously, there's all kinds of rhetoric the government can pour on this, saying, look what we can do together. We can develop vaccines, we can buy them. You can't do that as an independent country. But I, like you, David, I'm not sure how far that goes in countering what is a really deep feeling about representation. I mean, we're doing work on on the performance of the public services in the devolved um, Uh, parts of the UK. And uh, it's often not great. And what's interesting is that doesn't join up with the opinion polls where people still take enormous um, reassurance in many cases um, from uh, being represented so uh, uh, loudly in some cases, uh, but, but, but having their own representation. And People are are finding in this the uh, the, 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 the reassurance of the strength or the sense of identity that they want. Obviously, in in every case, as I was also saying, there's a, there's a minority that doesn't, and, and or even still majority um, in some places that doesn't see it that way. But I'm not sure, like you, David, that um, people's impulses towards devolution or independence are easily going to be answered by um a list
1: of practical measures at this point can we stay uh, with the uh, union just for a couple of minutes longer i'd like to ask you both whether you think uh that um the uh, the case for remaining a united kingdom can be built on process such as the kind you've just described uh, bronwyn of consultation and so on or, or whether some kind of structural change uh, might be uh, more appropriate and from the audience um uh, John Stern asks whether decentralisation with England would anyway improve the quality of government. He points out Britain is heavily centralised state and local government, little, little local autonomy. Is there is there any argument around that?
0: I, I think there is the, for, for more uh, decentralisation. Um, and I think this this uh, crisis has shown it in many ways that many of these things are much better handled, um, particularly the, the, the delivery of these things, locally. There's some things have to be handled centrally. Um, I think, I mean, you know, there's a building case for it, but there has been for a, a long time.
2: Where are we well, you on this one, David? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a large part of the challenge for the government is that it's got to simultaneously make the case for us being better off together and to make the case that many things are better done, um, at least decentralized and in some respects separately too. And it's extraordinarily difficult balance to achieve that that case for what we can do together has to go alongside a serious commitment to devolve further. There is always the problem that English devolution is unresolved and again just the, never mind the bandwidth but whether anyone really has the answer to the question of what form of english devolution would meet the bill because this is a very unequal union for all the reasons that we know and, and the inequality both ways just inside scale and power the inequality both ways is what feeds some of the political anger um and I th- you know i think we've been aware of it throughout the pandemic that the westminster government in some guises is now an English government and some guises it's a UK government and that that's unresolved I mean the only other thing I'd say I mean I think the politics of the vaccine is a good illustration of just how difficult this is so on the one hand there is the case for saying look as it were this is a UK achievement we can do this together it's partly because of the support of the Westminster government that this was possible there's also a temptation that I would be amazed if this government resists to say that this is going better in England than it is in Scotland And that therefore you shouldn't trust the SNP because they're not as good as they say they are at some of the practicalities of government. And those two arguments don't go together. Mm -hmm. One is divisive and one is unifying. And the politics of the vaccine Mm -hmm. is both divisive and unifying. And you need extraordinary political skill to pull that off.
1: Just just before we uh, leave uh, David's question about experts and uh, expertise, uh, and Mary Jajewski in the audience asks, is it possible that when the dust settles, this government will be found to have heeded the scientists too much rather than too little?
2: Um, yes, yeah, <laughs> I, possible.
0: yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do think it's possible. Um, and it, it hasn't explained how it's balanced the science uh, with with other um with with other points um and and owned if you like uh you know that whole very very complex decision um but there are obviously points when it didn't follow the uh the, what the scientists were saying as uh, they wanted earlier lockdowns look it's, it's it's a it's a mixture of things but are there going to be points when it looks like that probably yes yeah
2: and, and i don't want to say anything that sounds too uh, sort of incendiary in this context but it, it is striking even yesterday that um, you know, the, the, the theatre of these press conferences, where the politician is flanked by different kinds of either administrators or experts. And yet, yesterday, it's the prime minister who has to hang his head. Um, and I'm sure it's right that he should hang his head. But there is some unspoken division here as to who hangs their head and who doesn't. And they are in it together. I mean, this was a collective, you know, in ways that we will, you know, historians will have to tell us how it worked. But collective decisions were made. I'm not sure it's absolutely at all clear that the politicians were always in charge. And yet when it comes to the blame game, we have a clear understanding of who takes responsibility. And politics is partly about that. But given the complexity and the interdependence of these questions and the reliance in so many of these issues on forms of expertise that are not accessible to most of us, it's not straightforward that that division of labour is sustainable when it comes to accountability and blame.
1: Um, And and to that, um, uh, Louis uh, Crusoe asks, is this a call for greater transparency? What was advised, what was decided, and so on?
2: Yes. I mean, it it shouldn't have to wait on future historians. Um, I think there is a lot that we could learn um, and will learn over the next months and years about when and how decisions were taken. But for now, it's... um, (laughs) Yeah. There is more theatre than there is transparency yeah. around the politics of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I go back to um, Bronwyn's opening remarks about poor decisions being made? Um, and, and the question in my mind about that really was, you know, to what extent do you think is this a consequence of uh, shortcomings in the Johnson government, as opposed to the fact uh, the long standing weaknesses in uh uk uh governance uh the ifg for example has argued you uk is the worst of all worlds an over centralized system of government without the capacity to organize from the center and an under-resourced uh number 10 and cabinet office is that how, how do you how do you balance those two in in thinking about um poor decision making over the last year
0: i think it's both I mean, this, the structural problems are there, as as we've written, and we've written a recent paper uh, about this as well, um, uh, which I think you're quoting from. Um, yeah. But um, last week, uh, but it's also about this government and indeed this prime minister. I think every government and every its style of decision making inevitably reflects um, the person at the centre, and I think um this government has taken time to work out and to understand what the machine of government is capable of doing uh it does take most governments time to work that out uh it's partly why we spend time with new ministers or indeed aspiring ministers to explain how it works and how you can get stuff done but i think this one anyway was going to find it a bit harder Perhaps because of the speed at which it wanted to take decisions and the ambition of the slate of things it had that it wanted to do, even before coronavirus came along. So it, it is a conjunction of these things. And then, as I said at the beginning, adding just the newness of the government into it all added a further degree of strain. I think because it takes any government time to work out what committees is it going to have every day, just how is it going to run itself. So you've got you've got three things there.
2: Yeah. Anything you add, David? Well, I mean, in a way to to sort of push a question that I just touched on in in my remarks, and I'd be really interested to know what Bronwyn thinks about this, which is the risks of the the current opposition strategy, which is to focus on competence, uh, given that two things are going on here. There is the question of the incompetence of this government, and then there's the question of the structural challenge to be competent under these conditions for any government, given the range of institutions that it has to work through, and whether a really convincing case for the politics of competence has to include structural reform. That is, if we want competent governments, it's not just enough that we have people who take competence seriously, Mm. but that actually the conditions for competence are, some of them, independent on whoever happens to be in power. And that sort of reform, which is not part of the opposition case, not least presumably because it's not headline-grabbing and it's boring, but that sort of reform for the politics of competence to be convincing has to be part of the package.
1: Could you take that forward another couple of minutes? Just what what do you mean by
2: uh, that kind of reform? What do you you have in mind? Well, I I think it will. So, I mean, there's an international comparison that we need to make here too. So, yes, the UK government has done worse, no question. But in a sense, all governments have found this enormously challenging. And the different challenges are often a function of the kinds of governing systems in in which they operate you know the italian government i'm sure would say that it has struggled partly because of the structure of italian politics the relationship between the center and the regions the ability of governments to take decisions in a timely manner and so on if if it is the case and it must be at least possibly the case that any government would have struggled under these conditions um is it enough just to say we would we would have done it better that's i mean i'm i'm wary of it i think the 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 current opposition to this government risks running out of steam because it places too much emphasis on the thought that they would have done it differently. Mm -hmm. And some of it seems baked into me. But I I genuinely would like to know what Bronwyn thinks. Mm -hmm. I mean, she knows much more about this than I do.
0: I think some of it is baked in. I was thinking, as you were talking, of whether we could um, snaffle the uh, creating the conditions for competence as one of the IFG's taglines. Um, Very alliterative yes um i'll work on that um i there are things that just don't work well about british government and they've been there for um a long time in fact it's sometimes precisely because they've been there for a long time that they don't work well i'm referring in passing to this deeply technical thing of arm's length bodies this awful mouthful of jargon for the whole assortment of um, of, of agencies and government bodies, some of which are under direct control, and some of which are, you know, accountable directly to parliament, and, and all set up at different times, and is really quite genuinely legally uh, and politically hard to to wade through that thicket, and yet they turn out to be absolutely crucial at times like this. So you know, the, 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 there's, there's tidying up there. There's, there's certainly questions right at the centre um, that aren't always clear about about who is responsible and what the cabinet secretary can tell very senior people in the civil service to do and so on. And part of what the IFG does is to write about this and and, indeed nag uh, governments in turn um, to do something about it. I think there is though a separate question on top. I I agree. I don't think the the Labour's um, uh, answer of just, well, we would have done it better is any kind of answer at all because they're doing it always with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight um, about something that has just gone wrong. I think the kind of things I pointed to, this government has been particularly prone to, but others are as well, of tra- taking decisions very fast, not consulting properly the, the, the departments, not consulting with each other, and then not communicating its reasons very well and indeed not not, not being transparent um, which allows the kind of feedback that, that then you know, allows it even um, very quickly to improve. But it, you know, governments are, are prone to this. The crisis has, in many ways, not brought out the best in, in government in many, in many countries. Um, it, it's, it's so much strained, uh, their values and, um, uh, and the sheer mechanism of, uh, of government. So I agree. I don't think it's a good answer of Labour's. On the other hand um there are some things uh, there are many things that are enduring uh, that are problems in the british system there are some things it seems to me that do come from this the very the newness and the tendency to take decisions very quickly of the johnson government
2: and can i so to to make it more and this again I'm, i'm aware will be seem to be slightly provocative but to make it more tangible do you think it has anything to do with the fact that this is a government that was elected with a big majority under a first-past-the-post system, and one of the counterfactuals that it seems to me almost never gets asked but is worth asking is, would a coalition government have done better? Because some of the things you describe do seem to me to be characteristic of one of the distinctive features of British politics, which is our electoral system and the way in which its great advantage is meant to be it produces decisive governments with whippable majorities in parliament. But For a crisis like this, where consultation and a range of views seems to be valuable, is there something to be said for the fact that that is itself a function of our political system? I mean, I'm not saying that we should have proportional representation so that next time there's a pandemic, we're better equipped. But I think it is worth asking whether a coalition government might have done better.
0: It might have, but it depends what the coalition was. I mean, some coalitions don't work very well. Some produced by a PR system achieve perfect stasis and manage mm-hmm. not to do anything at all and what this government is most accused of is moving too slowly at at, at different points and i'm not sure a coalition government would um, particularly have been faster. I think this government it, it wasn't the arrogance of a big majority it didn't it, it just didn't want to do this I think is, is my mm. sense of the conversations at that time. there was the exhilaration and surprise to be frank of, of the election victory. there was the uh, uh, the leveling up agenda not very well scripted but something of inspiration to the prime minister and um, the cabinet. Uh, they were very very focused on getting brexit done. At the end of January, and I think that's one reason why uh, the very unwelcome news that a new horror was forcing its way, n- not only onto the agenda, but to the top of it, why that, that was kind of slow to uh, to dawn. And then the, perhaps the prime minister's own instincts of not wanting to shut down um, life and uh, the economic life of, uh, of the country and tell people what they couldn't do um, played in, in until the evidence from other countries became inescapable. Um I, I, I don't know. I think I think it was it was difficult.
2: But there was also a certain amount of waiting on the prime minister, even when the prime minister was so ill. Um, I mean, it is also mm. a system of government where a prime minister with a big majority in parliament has extraordinary power. And as you said, mm. you know, a lot of this is to do with either waiting on his decisions or him occasionally acting impulsively too. And there are ways of doing politics which um, don't allow for quite that much discretion on the part of someone in Johnson's position
0: or rely generally on the person uh, the prime minister not not um not having quite that character I mean you've seen you've you've seen in the the U.S. an intensely codified uh country proud of its codified constitution and all that how someone who behaves in a different way uh can uh, you know make make a nonsense of the rules that people you know thought were there or the constraints people thought were there i'm not saying johnson's like that he's not he's, he's not um but every prime minister has you know particular characteristics and I, it's very very hard to codify that away
1: uh, from from the audience uh, uh jay severi is um interested in both your thoughts on the possibility of opposition running out of steam by focusing on the competitive uh, of competence
2: question and wants to know what's the alternative interesting I mean I, I do think I, I was trying to sort of hint at I think the opportunities here for opposition uh, particularly for what might call sort of entrepreneurial opposition are great I think over the next few years as this crisis turns from its sort of frozen phase into its shakedown phase where the winners and losers become much clearer. There will be intense competition to speak for the anger that there will be, the intense anger there will be, I think, about some of the ways in which the government has handled this. And I do not think that the current opposition party will have a monopoly on that, even under a first-past-the-post system, even when the UK is potentially fracturing and the SNP is also um, monopolising a certain kind of opposition too. I mean, I think we've forgotten that not that long ago, the two-party system itself seemed to be, coming apart. And in many ways, you know, the last few years are anomalous relative to the previous 20. And there is the possibility here, I think, for other parties to emerge. And I do think we should all think seriously about where the real anger that there is among many people about lockdown itself is going to go, because I don't think that that's going to go away. And again, I think there may be politicians who are able to exploit that on one side, just as I think there may well be Politicians, And maybe it'll be the Green Party, maybe it'll be other parties who can channel the anger of people under the age of 35. I don't think Labour has a monopoly on it.
0: Mm. I, th- I think it, look, the real political task, Labour or this government, is to put words to give people a vision of what life after this is going to be like. So start with the, the, the NHS. Uh, are we going to re- really run it absolutely at the edge of capacity, as, 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 as has been the case for years? Or do people want um, a health service that, um, the, that has more ability to take in crises and whether people working in it um, are not so savagely strained as they have been in this? Um, that's a question. It's a political decision. It's a political decision for the people of this country. But what public services look like coming out of this is one is one of the, one of the big questions. Obviously, another side of that, you know, how that get gets paid for, labour labour's begun to try to put out. Its economic view, I have to say, not desperately, emphatically, in a way that to me resonates yet with the scale of this this problem and what life after coronavirus is going to be like. It needs to put words to the the positive side of this, to the transformational side of this, as as uh, as, as we've been talking about. It, it needs to you know, pick up these these questions that capture the wishes of the country. What level of benefits? Does uh, mind the row about the twenty pounds being maintained or not? Um, I mean that that is an important row, and it is a lot of money for those people. But Labour could take that and run with it into a whole discussion about whether the level of benefits in the UK, which has fallen behind that of many many countries, and has not. Uh, risen that much for many classes of people on benefits for over the past 45 years whether that whether that is is something the country wants so using this as a chance to talk to the country about what it wants of itself and indeed part of that uh, is the union itself well Labour has tried to say look we're going to talk about lots more powers and we're going to actually initiate that conversation and I think that's good that has slightly um, bloodless feel uh, to me uh, at the moment about it but I think the political task is to put words to the future of this and try to get a sense from the country and lead the country into what, what that future is going to be.
1: A question both of you have sort of prompted in my mind is um, how has politics changed by the fact that over the last year we've um, been given the impression that after all there is a magic money tree. How does that change the game?
0: It does change it. Um, if you take the the £20 a week, um, that I was talking about, I mean, that, that just to start off with cost 6.6 billion a year will be more as more people go um, go, go on to um, that, that benefit, which is almost certainly going to happen. And yet, the difficulty for the Chancellor is that um, that, which in the old days would be a lot of money for a Chancellor to find, sounds like very little compared to the eye-watering sums. Um, I think it does change it. And I... Um, and i think it should change it um we are in a time of low interest rates maybe that doesn't go on forever but it is persisting at this point point. and the main thing is is for political parties to try to work out um how they are going to help the country build its future and those economic questions are they are definitely there but they are not as pressing as the other ones i think and so i think it's absolutely right politics politics has changed right right across
2: And I I mean, Bronwyn and I talked about this in another context, and we haven't yet mentioned the politics of climate change, which inevitably is going to factor into that question about what kind of a future this country wants coming out of this. There is the case for saying that if we can spend on this, we can spend on the other great emergency that we face too. But at the other end of the telescope, as it were, there's also the thing that Bronwyn touched on at the beginning of her talk, which is relatively small investments produced extraordinary results when it came to the vaccine under the the pressure of time because the crisis was so acute. And I think there are many people thinking about whether that case can be scaled up for the kind of investment, not necessarily just in infrastructure, but also in the innovations that we probably are going to need to tackle the other, well, the great, I think, crisis of our time that's coming which is the climate crisis. So I think it has changed the dynamics of it. I think it has done more than just changed the rhetoric. I think it's actually changed some of the possibilities too. But part of the problem is we've both discovered that there is a magic money tree and we've spent the money. I mean, that's the, <laughs> you know, the two things right. go together. They're not separate. Uh, theres There aren't two magic money trees, I don't think. Hmm. But maybe there is another one hiding somewhere. I
1: hmm. hmm. perhaps that leads on to... Um a theme that uh, Bronwyn raised towards the end of her lecture, which was about sort of managing expectations. Um, and I, I, in a way, as we draw, begin to draw towards the close, I'd like to hear your, both your thoughts on that. I mean, how how how, how should the, the government at this moment in the crisis uh, play its hand in terms of, um, on the one hand, um, uh, giving what reassurance it responsibly can to the public, and, uh, drawing attention perhaps giving ideas for what might happen after all this um, and uh, you know discussing the economic consequences how how can you possibly manage expectations after all this what's what's your advice to the government both of you
0: mine at this point is not to overpromise on what vaccines can do i think this is a really tricky point for the government on the one hand the technology through vaccines is there that is going to lead us um, back towards some kind of normality on the other hand, now that everyone has begun to focus on, on new variants and how quickly those can spread the, the the possibility that life when we as we emerge from this isn 't like it was before um i think is is real, and that it may take a long time it may take a long time to get a population vaccinated there will be still quite a few who 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 aren 't in a population there will be other countries that still uh, have it this is you, you begin to get the shape of something that is going to take countries globally years and years to work through and I think trying to keep a sense of hope but balancing it really with reality and stopping the you know one one jab and you're free sure. sort of um, expectation I think that that is the single most important there are lots of others
2: Yeah, and in a way, picking up on that, I think there is a danger to the back to normal as the test. I think that's a real hostage to fortune. Uh, But in a way, it doesn't have to be a handicap for the government that we're probably not going back to normal, because there is a case for saying that a lot about the normal were things that we wanted to change anyway. But setting as the benchmark when people will feel they're back in sort of summer 2019, I think is is, would be a terrible error, and the government does fall. I mean, Johnson himself falls into it quite a lot, Um, and it's just it is almost certainly going to be different for better and for worse. And so, the other cliché is "build back better," which is also, I think, most people now find quite irritating. But there is a way of focusing on the better rather than the normal, which allows us to allows the government to escape the risk that they never get us back to normal but also all the reasons that Bronwyn had to focus on the possibilities here because there are enormous possibilities coming out of this for all the horror of it. You know, the horror still has to play out and the long-term consequences, long COVID, the mental health crisis, the damage to children's education, the widening inequality, all that will play out over many years, but it will run alongside real opportunity. So it's not back to normal. It is back to both better and worse.
1: Win uh, rightly uh, warned us against sort of looking for um, bright spots in this uh, terrible period, uh, but I can't resist it, I'm afraid. Um, so I think that what I'd like you both to end up with is to say, well, what are the possibilities? What, what are the things we can take away from this experience uh, that will help create a better and fairer society? That's a big question.
0: It's this a huge question. It's <laughs> it always, it? you know, the biggest question for the, uh, you know, for the government and the rest of its 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 time. Um, I think it has to start with the the the, the te- techniques of care of medicine, moves on to ways in which people have been working and learning and doing doing those differently. The changes in cities that 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 that, that may follow, and the the, the changes in them. Um, in uh in in uh, the environment um for the better if people begin uh, you know working and traveling in different ways um there's all those um it is though a question of um th- th- there are very hard questions in there to answer beyond the technological if you like and i think that the government the governments that really succeed in these are the ones who Address the questions about inequality. Address the questions about what has happened to the poorest in uh, our countries, who have been hit very, very hard by this, and manage, you know, directly to address that and try to um, get to not just rebuild, which is an awful structural sense, but re- you know, re- recover and and lift people out of this. I, I talked at the beginning about um, the Attlee government and, and one senior civil servant said to me, this is, this is how we're thinking, Yvette. I'm not sure we can quite get to the scale of, of that at the moment, but we know it's there. And I think really trying to address some of those, those questions and say, we know we know they're there. We want to lift people out of this and into um, a future where we help them not only recover from this, but make, make the best from it. You know, that's going to be the task of politics. Um, but there are so many steps in that. Um, yeah. It really so is very If
2: difficult. I was to say in one sentence, it would be that the two big gaps in our politics, the education gap and the generation gap, have been exacerbated by what's happened over the last year, which means they're harder to ignore. And therefore, any government is going to have to address the growing inequality between young and old, which I think is real in the way that... Benefits and advantages are distributed, and between those with and those without various forms of education. I just think something which was growing and yet neglected can't be neglected any longer.
1: I think those are two uh, great challenges from you both on on which to uh, end this discussion. I'd like to thank uh, uh, both Bronwyn and, and David for a, a stimulating and a whole bunch of constructive ideas. Um, I, I think that's very very. Uh, rewarding evening and i'd like to to thank the audience uh uh, for taking part and for pumping through a lot of good and challenging questions um i'm sure there'll be lots of things to follow up and i'm sure the institute will follow things up Mm. but um if i could just end by thanking everybody here very much for being part of this and um good wishes in the time ahead
0: thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of ifg live please do subscribe to hear more And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.